Well, have you ever, uh, have you ever done something or maybe tried to do something for someone else? Uh, something to help them maybe or to benefit them, you know, something for their good. But maybe what you were doing was misunderstood. Maybe that person you were trying to help took it the wrong way or maybe they read something else into what you did that was not actually your intent. Uh, maybe they couldn't see the big picture at the time. They couldn't see why they needed help. You know, in our culture, uh, we tend to be so self-focused that we think, uh, sometimes it's arrogant for someone else to think they know what's good for us or, or to presume to do something for us, something on our behalf, when, when actually the very opposite is true. It can be our own arrogance that causes us to push other people away or, or to take offense at anyone who dares to think they could ever possibly know what's best for us. It's like they've committed some kind of great offense or crossed some kind of boundary that they've no right to cross. And yet the Apostle Paul said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And I just honestly, I don't believe that that's something we typically do in our society today count others more significant than ourselves. And, and then the apostle goes on to say, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Wow. So not only are we supposed to count other people more significant than ourselves, but we're also supposed to intentionally take the time and energy and effort to look to the interests of other people. Okay. It, it's not always arrogance when someone uninvited, looks into your interests. Often that's actually the church being the church. But again, when you do that today, in this culture, even in the current church culture in America, you can sometimes find yourself on the receiving end of a lot of resistance because as a society, uh, we often think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think which is, again, what the Apostle Paul warns us about in Romans 12.3. This happens with parents and their children a lot. And a parent will make a decision to do something that's best for their child because they can see the benefit that it will bring in their life. But the child doesn't necessarily see that. They don't always see the big picture, so they resist and sometimes even resent that parent for what they're doing in the child's life, right? There's an old saying that people who are misunderstood or at least believe they're misunderstood have been using for a long time, it says, history will be my judge, right? Meaning only after time passes and people look back on what I've done will they be fully able to appreciate what I've done. And I can't tell you how many people I've heard expressed over the years, and if I'm being honest, that includes myself, that it was only long after they'd grown up and moved away from home and in some cases long after their parents had passed on that they were able to fully appreciate their mother and father and all of the sacrifices and hard decisions that were made for their children's benefit. Uh, likewise, there have been world leaders throughout history who have made very difficult decisions at time for their nation, decisions that may have been very unpopular at the time and yet turned out to be extremely beneficial to their country even though the benefit could not be clearly seen until much later sometimes long after that leader was gone. In fact, it is often true that those who are misunderstood are only rightly judged by history, not always in the moment. There's, a, there's another expression like it that says, don't judge my story 
by the chapter you walked in on. That makes a lot of sense because if you isolate one decision, one action, one moment in a person's life, right, one aspect of who they are, and then you judge their entire existence based on that one aspect of who they are. I have people that come to me who are bent towards someone else for some, one thing they did 20 years ago. It's as if they judge that whole person's existence on that one thing. Right? If you do that, you're going to have a skewed version of who that person truly is. To be able to make an honest assessment of a person's life, you really have to look at the whole thing. You have to see the big picture and understand the whole body of work, their story from beginning to end. You, you, you can't just take one small bit and expect to understand who that person is and, and why they are the way they are. And I'll just tell you, of all the people who have ever been misunderstood in this world in that way, I'd have to say the most misunderstood of all time has to be Jesus Christ. He has been misrepresented down through the ages from the time he walked on this earth right up to today. And one of the reasons he's been so misunderstood is because people want to take one aspect of who he is or one event in his life or one portion of his story and then try to define his entire infinite existence with a very narrow set of parameters. Well, why do people do that? Because it is only then that we can justify our own agendas, our own lifestyle choices, our own passions, our own pet perspectives. It gives us a guilt-free pass to live a self-focused life that we can still very easily fit a one-dimensional Jesus into. See, it's, it's Christianity without conviction. For instance, if in our minds all that God is is love, Nothing more, nothing less. If we ignore all of the other aspects of his character and constitution, if we ignore his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his perfection, his sovereignty, his lordship, his truthfulness, if we ignore his power, his faithfulness, his immutability, God never changes. If we, if we ignore his mercy, his forgiveness, and our need for it, if we see only God as love and nothing else, then every relationship, every commitment, every decision that we make, no matter what it is, as long as we do it with love in our hearts, then we can fit Jesus nicely into those decisions and those relationships and those commitments because he's nothing more than love. So there's no conflict within us, which means there's no conviction within us. But Jesus isn't one-dimensional. And yet, if in our minds... All that God is, is justice. Nothing more, nothing less. We ignore all of those other aspects of who he is, including his love and his compassion and his grace. Then we can control other people with, with a set of rules that they can never live up to. Which is how we've ended up with religious leaders over the centuries who have beaten people over the head with their religious rules in order to control the masses. And all the while... Their one-dimensional Jesus fits quite well into that agenda. It's called Christianity without grace. Right? We can go on and on and on all day with this. You get the picture. The point is, in order to have a true understanding of Jesus that is faithful to who Scripture actually says he is, although you understand we can never 
We can never fully grasp who God is, but to faithfully understand him as much as a human being can, we have to look at the whole story, the big picture, all of the chapters of his existence that are available to us. We can't just take one chapter or one story or one book of the Bible and base all of our claims about Christ on that one small aspect or one small portion of his activity in the lives of his people. But that's exactly what people do all the time. That's nothing more than a feeble and really woefully inadequate picture of Jesus Christ when you do that because he's been active in this world from Genesis 1 all the way through to Revelation 22. Speaking of Jesus, the first four verses of the gospel according to John says, in the beginning, the beginning of the earth, was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Right? He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now we know he's eternally existent. He's uncreated. But he was right there in the beginning with the Father and the Holy Spirit from the beginning, which means if we're legitimately interested in understanding who this multidimensional, multifaceted Jesus really is, if you really want to know who he is, then fitting our lives, are you ready for it? fitting our lives into his agenda. And we have to look at the whole story, the entire story and how all of it fits together. And here's why this should matter to us today. Because I've spent a lifetime inside and outside of the church around many Christians who believe in a one-dimensional Jesus, which is not only a complete uh, disaster when it comes to representing him to the rest of the world. But when something happens in that person's life that doesn't line up with their extremely narrow view of who he is, their own faith is wrecked and often they'll walk away from him and the church because whatever happened in their life is utterly incompatible with their extraordinarily limited view of the character of Christ. So he must not be real, right? And so often they'll become disillusioned. I've seen it so many times and they leave the faith or they create a new version of the gospel that they can fit their version of Jesus into and then they write a clever book about it and a bunch of people follow what their book says about Jesus instead of what the Bible says about Jesus. That kind of anything goes relativistic view of Christ and scripture has in fact spawned countless versions of the gospel which are leading hordes of people away from the truth about Jesus Christ. So I just think it's fitting. Here at the end of the Joseph story, we've come to the end of this series. As we finish the sermon series on the life and times of Joseph, I think it's fitting that we find Joseph looking back on all that has happened in his life, both the good and the bad, and we see the character of God in all of it. Even the hardest parts, because Joseph understands God isn't one-dimensional. So he's able to see God in all of it, right? He's looking at the big picture, not just one chapter of his life. Some of those were some hard chapters. He's not looking at one event in his life or one aspect of God intervening in his life. Joseph sees it all. It's an extraordinary perspective the man had how it all fits together into God's plan, God's agenda, the, the whole story 
for Joseph and his family and the generations to come after them. And even in spite of all of the heartache and all of the hardship, Joseph is able to say of all of it that God meant it for good. And so as we read it together, I think we'd be wise to take heed of this last part of this wonderful story and maybe we can learn one last lesson from this truly extraordinary man of God that no matter what we go through in our lives, as we follow Christ, number one, God knows what's best for us. And number two, he means it for our good. So let's pick up the story where we left off last week. This is after Jacob pronounces all the blessings over his sons and then he breathes his last breath on this earth. Chapter 49, verses 28 through 33. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. That is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each of them with blessings suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. Then Jacob finished commanding his sons. He drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So at the end of the chapter... Jacob breathes his last, but just before he does, for the third time in this story, once in chapter uh, 47, once in chapter 48, and here in chapter 49, Jacob drives home the point to Joseph that he is to bury Jacob in the land of promise, that is Canaan, where his grandfather and grandmother and father and mother, his, his wife Leah, mother to six of his sons, where they were all buried. But it's only when you realize how respected Jacob was at this point in his life by the Egyptians, which we'll see in a moment, that you can truly understand how big of a deal it was to him uh, to be buried back in Canaan because Egypt was full of magnificent tombs, right? Jacob was held in the highest regard by the Egyptian people and by the Egyptian royal court, which means he could have actually been buried like a pharaoh if he wanted to be. And yet he was choosing to be buried in an obscure cave somewhere in Canaan. Why? Because he was far more interested in the promises of God for his life than he was in the promises of this world for his life. And of course he knew that God knew best. And so God promised Jacob back in chapter 46 that Joseph would bury him in the land of Canaan. So even in his own death, Jacob looks forward to the good that God has intended for him because as sad as it was for his family... Jacob knows that when it comes to his own dying, even to his own dying, that God meant it for good, which is evident in the description of his death in verse 33, where instead of focusing on the dying part, the author focuses on Jacob being gathered to his people, right? Because we know that for a follower of God, the apostle Paul says to live is Christ and to die is, is what? He says is to gain, Philippians 1.21. So God can bring good, out of even the most difficult of circumstances. And we're going to talk about that more as we keep reading. Let's go uh, chapter 50, verses 1 through 3. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. 
So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. So the embalming process in Egypt was performed as a religious observance more than it was for the preservation of a body. And so it was typically a function of the priesthood. The Hebrew word for physician is the word rapha, which means healer or physician, but that was also used to refer to priests in ancient Egypt who were considered to be healers as well. The point being that these were royal priests or royal healers that were sent to attend to Jacob's body. This wasn't your run-of-the-mill funeral. And we know that from uh, uh, Diodorus, he's a first century BC historian, that the official mourning period uh, for a member of the royal court in Egypt was 72 days. And as we see in verse 3, they mourned Jacob for 70 days, which along with how they were preparing his uh, body for burial tells you how highly regarded he was by the royal court and by the Egyptian people who wept for him that entire time. This was nearly a royal funeral. Amazing. And so what initially looked like a terrible disaster, Jacob and his family having to pack up and move to Egypt back in chapter 46 to keep from starving to death, wasn't in fact a disaster at all. In truth, God meant it for good. In addition to what he did in Egypt through Joseph, which we'll look at in a moment, we now see an entire nation and all of its leadership, all the way right up to the top, focused on a Hebrew man and his family. It's amazing the influence that this small band of Hebrews was able to have on the most powerful pagan nation on earth at the time was not only profound, but it was astonishingly unlikely, and yet it was accomplished because God used the shattering of Jacob's dreams Namely, having to give up his standing and possessions, his holdings in Canaan, the promised land, to go into a foreign pagan nation so he could survive a great famine. God used those broken dreams in Jacob's life for good, ultimately to prosper Jacob and his family, not only materially, but in terms of their influence on this great nations and its leaders. And... Of course, to grow the Hebrew people into a great nation themselves. Something that never would have happened or been achieved had they stayed in Canaan. Just based on their track record when they were there. And yet no one could appreciate what God was ultimately doing through Jacob. Until the end of Jacob's story. Okay, moving to Egypt initially was both terrifying and a great unknown and not what Jacob had planned for his life, but he was desperate to see his son Joseph and desperate to find a way to provide for his family during a terrible famine, right? And yet he had been warned about Egypt before. The very last thing on Jacob's mind at that point would have been flourishing in Egypt beyond even the Egyptian people themselves. Right? Being loved and revered by not only the common people, but by the king of Egypt as well. But that's exactly what happened. Because for Jacob, what was the end of a dream, God meant for good. All right, look. For something new to begin in your life, something else always has to end. Right? For, for something new to begin in your life, something else has to end. We all have plans for the future. We all have dreams for our lives. And sometimes those plans or those dreams come to an abrupt end. 
Sometimes our dreams get shattered through the circumstances of life, don't they? Sometimes it, those, those plans, those dreams die a slow and painful death until one day we realize the dream is over and we're faced with the sobering truth that what we thought was going to unfold in our lives, how we thought our future would look, is no longer a reality. And it is then, it is then in those pivotal moments in life that we have a choice to make. We can either focus on what has ended or we can look to a new beginning. But one thing is for sure, you cannot embark on a new journey without leaving something else behind. And that may be painful at times, but it is necessary and ultimately it is for our good. Okay, the past is there to learn from not to live in. We have to leave that behind to move on. Let's keep reading verses 4 through 14. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the, the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I have hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor at Etad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land of the Canaanites saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Etad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizram. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So Joseph fulfills Jacob's final wish to be buried in Canaan and the, the sheer size and scope of the funeral uh, procession just underscores the influence and the significance of Jacob's life in Egypt really beyond anything he could have achieved had he stayed in Canaan. This is, uh, by the way, this is far and away the grandest state funeral ever recorded in all of the Bible as Gordon Wenham puts it with all the pomp and ceremony that Egypt could muster. So they come to the threshing floor of Etad, which we're told from both ancient historians, Eusebius and Jerome, uh, was near uh, Jericho in the uh, Jordan Valley. And there the entire company laments with a very great and grievous lamentation. They mourn for seven days to the point that the Canaanites named the place Abel Mizram, which means mourning of Egypt. Okay, it's hard to overstate the significance that Jacob held with the Egyptian people, and no doubt in the world at that time. But remember, this man's life story it spans over a half of the book of Genesis. 
his grandfather's life overlapped with the sons of Noah. It's amazing. He was the last of the great patriarchs, and he left a truly indelible mark on the nation of Egypt, of course, the nation of Israel, and the land of Canaan. It all came about, all of that, only after much brokenness and heartache, bad decisions, sin, shattered dreams, because as harsh as Jacob's life had been at times, still God meant it for good. And in much the same way, he can take your brokenness and your heartache and your bad decisions and your sin and your shattered dreams and he can turn it into something beautiful. The key to that is just to follow him where he leads you. It may not look like you thought it would. It may take you to places you never planned to go. And the journey may be tremendously humbling at times, hard at times with a lot of unknowns and even shattered dreams along the way. But if you'll just continue to follow him, even when you don't understand what he's doing in your life, he'll make something beautiful out of it. Because God knows what's best for you. And he's working all of it together as you go for your good. Let's read 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the, trans the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So as soon as Jacob is gone, Joseph's brothers begin to get paranoid and fear for their lives because the evil that they did to Joseph when they abducted him and sold him to traitors and then those traitors sold him into slavery which led to many years of suffering. For Joseph. And given Joseph's power and position in Egypt, he was certainly capable of meeting out a harsh sentence on his brothers and would have been justified in doing so. So the brothers get together and they cook up a story, figuring that Joseph would be more likely to honor their dead father's final wishes than their own pleas for mercy because they knew they were guilty and deserved punishment that to date had never come. So they asked Joseph for forgiveness based on the supposed wishes of their father and it breaks Joseph's heart. Not because he's reminded of all his suffering but because he forgave them a long time ago and he's now just realizing that they're still carrying their guilt and shame. Joseph says, look guys, you don't get it. You meant evil against me but God meant it for good. So why are you still carrying your guilt and shame? You've been forgiven. You have no reason to fear. I'm here to care for you, not to judge you. 
we get so caught up in our own mistakes, in our own failures. Sometimes we can't see what God's doing in us and around us at the same time. But Jesus said, my father is working until now and I am working. John 5, 17. In other words, God is always working. Listen, when we screw things up, God doesn't take a break. He doesn't go on vacation until we get our act together so he can come back and work on our behalf again. No, Paul said, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Romans 8, 28. He didn't say God works nice things together for our good. He didn't say God works good times together for our good. Paul didn't say God works our sinless days together for our good. No. Paul very intentionally said God works everything. All of it. He works it together for our good. Okay? Look, it isn't God who can't get past our mistakes. It's us who can't get past our mistakes. If you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, your sin has already been atoned for. So now every failure in your life, including all the ones you're making now, and all the ones you're ever going to make, he's working all of that together along with everything else, all the victories and all the losses, all the good days and all the bad days when everything is going as planned and when nothing is going as planned. He takes all of that and he works it all out as only he can because he knows what's best. He works it all out for our good. There are so many waypoints in Joseph's life where he could have so easily given up turned within himself, stopped serving, stopped loving, stopped moving forward. By the way, he didn't have Romans 8.28 in print at the time. But it must have been written on his heart because no matter what life dealt him, that man just kept on following God. And the results have had the most profound effect on the world, including you and me, by the way, I don't know if you know that. I love how David Gusick says it. I'll just quote him. He says, if Joseph's brothers never sell him to the Midianites, then Joseph never goes to Egypt. If Joseph never goes to Egypt, he's never sold to Potiphar. If he's never sold to Potiphar, Potiphar's wife never falsely accuses him of rape. If Potiphar's wife never falsely accuses him of rape, then he's never put in prison. If he's never put in prison, he never meets the baker and butler of Pharaoh. If he never meets the baker and butler of Pharaoh, he never interprets their dreams. If he never interprets their dreams, he never gets to interpret Pharaoh's dream. If he never gets to interpret Pharaoh's dream, he's never made prime minister. If he's never made prime minister, he never wisely administrates for the severe famine coming upon the region. If he never wisely administrates for the severe famine coming upon the region, then his family back in Canaan perishes from the famine. If his family back in Canaan perishes from the famine, then the Messiah can't come forth from a dead family. If the Messiah can't come forth, then Jesus never came. And if Jesus never came, then you are dead in your sins and without hope in this world. We are grateful for God's great and wise plan. Wow. We think we know where our lives are going. 
We think we know what's next in his plan. We think we have a grasp on what God has in store for us. We don't have a clue. We don't have a clue. Not until we get there. We don't know the end of our story based on the chapter we're living in today. Neither does anyone else except God. In fact, we don't even know what's on the next page. Joseph didn't either, obviously. But he trusted that God did. And he believed that in the end, God meant it for good. And I'll tell you, it seems like no matter what Joseph went through in his life and no matter what he didn't understand, one thing he understood well was that God wasn't finished with him yet, no matter how difficult his life was at times. And so Joseph lived well. And in fact, he died well. Let's finish this story. Verse 22 to the end. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the generation also of Machir, that is uh, where the tribe of, um, that was where the Gileadites came out of the tribe of Machir, the son of Manasseh. So they were very blessed. They were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear by saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. And they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So on his deathbed, Joseph encourages his brothers <clears throat> with an ancient Hebrew idiom. It was a saying, God will surely visit you, which is a clear indication, by the way, that God's promises for his family we're not solely dependent upon the life of Jacob or Joseph. No, the promises were given just as much to these other brothers, which is also an indication that the promises of God in our lives are not dependent upon any merit of our own. Right? They are rather the result of the unmerited grace of God upon us all, right? which just underscores the point of this message. God isn't keeping a scorecard on your wins and losses. And then at the end of your days on this earth, if your wins outnumber your losses, maybe you'll be rewarded. No. You know what that is? That's dead religion. Jesus says, if you will believe in me and follow me, then I'm going to take everything on your scorecard and I'm just going to work it all out for your good. Not because you deserve it, but because you belong to me. And my love for you is infinitely greater than all of your failures combined. To the point that you don't have to despair when hard times come because I'm taking every part of your life and I'm making something beautiful. That's how jo Joseph lived his life. Even when everything seemed to be going wrong, he just kept serving. He just kept loving. He just kept following God. Because he knew that what men meant for evil, God meant it for good. Look, you're my friends. So I'm just going to tell you straight. We need to work this out in our lives like Joseph worked it out in his. Because I know far too many Christians personally who are ready to throw in the towel 
at any given moment when things don't go as planned. I've been there in my own life. You think God has left you in the dust and all the while he's taking all the parts of your life, the brokenness and the failures and the heartaches and the losses. He's using all of those parts that we don't like along with all the ones we do. He's taking all those parts and he's building something beautiful. Something that at any minute you're ready to walk away from because you're not seeing the big picture. You can't. Only God can. Yet you're judging God's work in your life based on one chapter. Look, the story of your life isn't finished yet. So don't get stuck on a page that you don't like because it's just one part of your story. Look, Jesus isn't one-dimensional and neither is your life. It takes all the different pages and all the different chapters with all the ups and all the downs, all of the changes, all of the adventure, all the good times, all the hard times to make up the story of your life. And in many ways, it's a great unknown for us. We, we don't know the rest of the story yet, which means you can't take one aspect of your life when you're in the middle of it or a bad set of circumstances, or even a season of brokenness and dysfunction, and then presume to know what's best for you. No, because only God knows what's best for you. And look, sometimes what's best is what hurts the most. Sometimes what's best is what we resist the most. Sometimes what's best is what we want the least but we need the most. So why don't, we, why don't we take a page out of Joseph's story and trust that only God knows the whole story because he wrote the story. And it's a beautiful story with all kinds of twists and turns and ups and downs and great adventures. It's a story that is full of awe and wonder where there are many unknowns, but one thing is for certain. That no matter what we go through in this life, it's okay. Because God meant it for good. Let's pray.